All right, and as Leonard indicated, we are going to take a quick detour from the book of John this morning. And, and one of the reasons I want to take a quick detour is because I want to focus on gospel clarity. And so this morning, I want to talk about really what is the gospel. Now, for those that are believers and have been saved for a number of years, you're like, oh man, I could have slept in today. I could have stayed home. I already know this stuff. But you know, I really want to kind of uh, set the stage for us. And I, and I want to set the stage in a couple of ways because I want to clarify really in two distinct areas. And one is the gospel message itself. In fact, if I were to give you a sheet of paper right now and say, tell me what the gospel is in a sentence or less, go. And then I was to take your sheet of paper and read it in front of the congregation. How, how confident would you be that you could really clearly and quickly define the gospel message? And again, this isn't about passing a quiz or winning a Bible trivia contest. This is about understanding clearly what the message is that's described in the Bible as the power of God unto salvation. And so we want to just take a quick step back and provide some clarity on that. And then the second thing we want to provide some clarity on, this is going to be over the course of the next few weeks, is the biblical response to the message of the gospel. Because these two things are greatly confused, not only in our day, but what really got me thinking about this, and I want to kind of walk you through why I'm thinking about this, is because of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And then you go to the other end of the social spectrum, and you've got a conversation that he had with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And it is clear from both of those conversations that confusion abounded in these two areas even then as they do today. And oftentimes when you teach what something is, it actually is helpful to provide distinctions of what it's not because it tends to provide additional clarity when you're able to do those things. So that's kind of the goal. And so if you recall, just as a quick run up to this morning in John chapter three, Nicodemus was an Orthodox Jew, right? He was passionate defender of the entire Old Testament. Now, why do I say entire? Because we're gonna contrast him with the Samaritan woman. Remember, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. He bought into the entire Old Testament. In fact, by the time where he had gotten in his life, he had large portions of the Old Testament memorized. I think I've said this before, but in ancient Judaism, oftentimes when young men approached their bar mitzvah, you know, age 12, 13, they had to memorize the entire Pentateuch, five books of the Bible. You know, it put our Awana program to shame, right? I mean, it's like, we're like pumped when the kids get a verse a week, you know, and, and that's great. No, we're not minimizing that. But the, but the Orthodox Judaism, Nicodemus knew details. He knew large portions of scripture. He observed the details of the sacrificial system perfectly. And let me just state this. He had a, and I'm going to get kind of geeky here, but he had a normal, literal, grammatical Bible study approach which is exactly the, the approach that we attempt to take here in this church, right? It's, it's recognizing language the way that Yank language was designed to be used. It's recognizing metaphors. It's recognizing similes. It's saying that when Israel is used in the Bible, it means Israel. It doesn't mean something else that you had to kind of get creative to figure out what it means. Nicodemus and his pharisaical group held to that type of an interpretation model. Yet in spite of all this, one of the things that came out in this conversation with Nicodemus is that Nicodemus didn't seem to understand the suffering servant passages in the Old Testament, where the, the Old Testament specifically said that the Messiah would suffer, the Messiah would die, Daniel 9, the Messiah would be cut off, right? Uh, Isaiah 53, that he would bear our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace would be upon him. 
that it pleased the Lord to crush him, right? All of these prophecies, Orthodox Judaism didn't know how to, to fit that in. And the reason, because of, uh, because of the Abrahamic covenant, largely, they're trying to fit all this in because they saw a reigning king. They saw Israel's ownership of the land, which by the way, was there a king on the throne when Nicodemus was alive in the first century? No, Rome was in charge. Did Israel own the land? No, Rome was in charge. Were the Jews experiencing blessing and prosperity? No, they were under the thumb of Rome. He was looking forward to the Abrahamic covenant. How did those two things fit together? Judaism at that time really didn't have an answer. They were a little confused. And this is kind of the point. The other thing that we know that Nicodemus did not understand was this concept of faith, righteousness that was taught in the Old Testament. And what do I mean by that? That means the only way we can be made righteous before a holy and just God is when he credits it to our account when we trust in him. And we see that's true throughout the Old Testament. It happened, it's true of Abraham. It's true of David. It's true of every Old Testament saint. Nicodemus did not pick that up. And so if you asked Nicodemus and you came up to anybody in his circle and you said, how do you get into the afterlife? How do you get into the kingdom? That would have been his frame of reference. He would have said this. Well, if you're a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you're circumcised, and if you made an effort to keep the Mosaic law, you were gonna be in the kingdom. It was all physical, it was ethnic, it was what you did or continue to do or what you didn't do and continue not to do. It was all about you. Flip over to the Samaritan woman, totally opposite ends of the spectrum, and yet, you know what? She was also religious. She too was hung up on externals. They were a different grouping of externals. The reason for that is she only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. And so she had, uh, ironically enough, um, a, a similar type external view. She was religious, but we also know that she was personally licentious. She had a lot of public moral failings that people could point to, and this is why she was an outcast. And so she was the opposite of Nicodemus in every single category. And so what did Samaritans believe about the afterlife? Well, as best we can tell, she thought you had to worship on a certain mountain, Mount Gerizim, and she believed that you must wait for the prophet that Moses prophesied about to tell you more of what you need to do. And so this is why we're jumping out. Of, if you're ever wondering, like, how does John Clark get to think and lead to this? I'm letting you into my mind. It's a scary place to be some days. I will admit that. But why are we jumping out of John? Why are we coming into this kind of mini series? Something clicked in my mind as we started studying through these conversations of these two opposite end of the spectrum people, something clicked. And what clicked is that their understanding of salvation was eerily similar. Even though there were different details, it was eerily similar. And the eerily similar aspect about it was they made it all about you and what you must do or what you must continue to do to enter an eternity with God. See, it's more about what you have to do for God, and it's not about what God has already done for you. You see the difference? There's a distinction there. But what's so ironic is both of them, coming from different perspectives, almost were saying the same thing. At least there was some overlap in what they were saying. In fact, see if you can pick up a consistent theme. I'm going to just move through this quickly because I need to. I've got more material I actually want to get to setting the stage. But consider this. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Wow, that flew forward 14 times on me. Okay, here we go. 
This is what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, teaches regarding salvation. Salvation is a covenant relationship. Through this covenant relationship, followers of Christ are assured salvation from the eternal consequences of sin. Notice the big two-letter word there, if they are obedient. And there we go. To be cleansed from sin conditionally through the Savior's atonement, an individual must, now just pay attention, exercise faith in Christ, repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost through the proper priesthood authority, continue in faithfulness and endure to the end, keeping God's commandments. Do you see the religious emphasis on doing there? Do you see the religious emphasis on continuing to do there? What about the Jehovah's Witnesses? Believe that Jesus sacrificed his life for our sins. By the way, what have both of those cults thrown in the very first thing? Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, ironically enough. But that's not where they stop. That's the problem, by the way, of the biblical response to the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ, there's a very key punctuation point that needs to go right there at the end of that sentence. It's a period, not a comma, not a but, not an and. None of that needs to go there. It's a period. And so right off the bat, when they've got more than one step, you're like, I'm tuning it out. Because I know it's faith in Jesus Christ, period. But notice what else they say and see if you see the similarities. Learn what the Bible really teaches. Repent, get baptized, obey Jesus' instructions, endure to the end. See any similarities there in religious thinking? Yeah, we should. What about the Catholic Church? Well, according to the Catholic Church, Christ did not accomplish a full, finished, and complete salvation in his work of atonement. Can you imagine stating that publicly in your own documentation? It's, that is mind-blowing. I, I almost didn't put it in because I, you know, I didn't want to get hit by lightning, just repeating the statement, you know? I mean, clearly that's not what we believe or understand the scriptures to teach, and but notice what it says. His work simply merited grace. Now, anytime you see the word merit next to grace, you got an oxymoron, don't you? Because grace by definition means undeserved merit or unearned favor. So he says his work merited grace for man, which is then channeled to the individual through the Catholic church and its sacraments. This grace then enables man to do works of righteousness in order to merit or earn justification, a declaration of righteousness by God and eternal life. Again, do you see the religious emphasis on doing? Now, this is what's really mind-blowing, and this is why we're going to spend some weeks looking at false gospel response cliches. Because do you know, and I'm not gonna name anybody by name um, this morning, but I do wanna provide some quotes from some unnamed evangelicals that if I said their name, you would know them. In fact, many of you might even have their name on your study Bible. That's the, bit, that's the closest hint I'm going to give to you. But notice this, quote, salvation is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. That makes sense. In fact, if you like this quote, I want you to be my Christmas gift buddy. Because I got a deal for you. I'm going to give you a Christmas gift and you can pay me $10 a month for the next 12 months. But it's a gift. It's free, but it's going to cost you. So you see the contrast. Number two, there are two things you must need to do to to be saved. 
Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ. We've seen repent go with some of the previous teaching from the cults. Now, this one's going to blow your mind. Remember the Latter-day Saint quote, salvation is a covenant? This is from a well-known evangelical author. Now, I just want you to read what he says. In fact, if you just read this, you wouldn't even, and I put it in the Mormon section, you'd be like, oh yeah, it says exactly what they just said. Why are they repeating themselves? But notice what it says. Salvation is a covenant. That is to say, at the point of your salvation, you made a promise to submit to the Lord. You made a pledge at that time to be obedient to Christ. It was a covenant of obedience. God at that time came to you for salvation, promised you forgiveness and eternal life and all the grace necessary to fulfill his will and the Holy Spirit, and you pledged obedience. And you need to go back and remember that, remember that and have the integrity to be, in, uh, to be faithful to your original promise. Now, let me ask you, just reading that quote, is salvation about you and what you must do or salvation about what Christ has already done for you? It, it would be hard to tell from that quote. It would be very hard to tell. And one more, we could go on forever. Saving faith is no simple thing. It has many dimensions. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is a massive command. And then notice what he goes on to say. It contains a hundred other things. We must turn from our sin. We must obey him. We must humble ourselves like little children, love him more than we love our family, our possessions, and our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of life everlasting. And you know what's crazy about all this to me? And by the way, please hear my heart in this. This is not to criticize other people. It is to show that the gospel and the response to the gospel is under, I believe, satanic attack. That's why we're taking the time to do this. It's not so I can criticize some other Bible teacher. I, I could care less. I, they would, quite frankly, they would have more to criticize me about, I'm sure. I'm sure they would. So it's not about that at all. But what's crazy about it to me is this. It's eerily similar. It, It's eerily similar to what cults are teaching about salvation. It is eerily similar to what Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman believed about salvation. It's all eerily similar. And and, and just notice the similar concepts. This is religion salvation checklist right here. Believe in Jesus. I mean, we've got to throw Jesus in there, right? I, I I mean, some pull Jesus out. But those are the ones that are really easy to see. What do you typically do when you're trying to present error, trying to get people to buy error? You introduce it alongside some kind of truth. Believe in Jesus, repent, be baptized, obey, be faithful, endure to the end. Now, by the way, we could throw Islam in here. We could throw Hinduism in here. We could throw Buddhism in here. We could throw any other religion in here. And the reason for that is there is an overlap in religious thinking, any type of thinking that goes into this. And the major focus is what you must do or continue to do to be saved. You know, I can hop on a plane and fly to anywhere in the world, practically. And I can sit next to almost anyone in the world and ask them, what does God require of someone to go to heaven? And you know what they'll tell me in no uncertain terms, this overlap that we're seeing and recognizing here? You gotta be good. You gotta do good. Stop doing bad. Do more good than bad. That's the mindset. It's all about you. God doesn't 
want it all about you. God didn't make it all about you. In fact, the only thing we brought to the party was the problem. You know, it's like the friend that, that comes to a potluck and they don't bring anything, right? I almost, I, I'm gonna stop there. All right, so that's what we bring to the party. We bring sin. We bring the problem. God brings the solution. God's not looking to you to bring the solution. God's provided a solution. And see, this is where religion misses the boat. This is where this mindset that I'm gonna work my way to God misses the boat. Now, does God have things to say about behavior in the word of God? Of course he does. That's a a foolish straw man argument to say, well, then then John just doesn't care how anyone lives. Of course I care how anyone lives. But I'm a little bit more concerned about them being born into the family correctly to start. Then we can talk about how to behave. Lots more time to talk about that. Let's not confuse birth with behavior. And that's what... Religion does. And why does this happen? Well, I kind of alluded to it already. I kind of, you know, blew my wad there because I was excited. The reason this happens, I believe, is because the gospel and the response to the gospel is under satanic attack. And by the way, I believe it will always be under satanic attack. That means that if you are a believer and you are passionate about what Jesus Christ accomplished for you, we need to put our ears open. We need to turn our radar on and we need to be listening for these things because it's always coming at you. It's always gonna take the spotlight off of Jesus Christ, which is where it belongs and it will eternally belong. And it's gonna wanna put it on you. That's what these attacks do. In fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians chapter four says this, Therefore, verse one, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitful, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so Paul is just really starting off saying, look, the way we're doing ministry is an open book. We're just being transparent. We're not trying to gain anything from you. In fact, if you know the story about Paul with the Corinthians, he went out of his way not to take their money, to work while he was there. So they couldn't accuse him of being just like every other Bible teacher had come to town with their hand out, right? Looking to be supported. So they had done everything right. But notice what he says in verse three. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And, and who are those who are perishing? Those are unbelievers, The gospel is veiled, it's hidden. We're gonna see in verse four that there's a reason for this, that there's a, uh, you know, today in our political scene, I mean, everyone's like conspiratorial, it feels like on both sides. But this is actually a a real conspiracy as described in the Bible. So I don't want you to associate that with the political side of the aisle that you hate, right? This is actually a diabolical conspiracy and I I want you to see what it is. Verse four, whose minds, speaking of the unbelievers, the God of this age has blinded. That's a a synonym for, for veiling the gospel. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Verse five, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus's sake. For it is God who commanded 
light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But go back up to verse four. Who's the God of this age? It's Satan. Satan is the God of this age. What is his diabolical plan? What is his conspiracy? What is he working behind the scenes? What are his schemes? He is trying to blind people of the true gospel. And notice this. He's, verse four, the minds of the God uh, of this age is blinded. Then what does that next phrase say? Who do not do what? Believe. They won't believe. They'll do everything else on planet earth, but not trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's how he's trying to distract. First John five nineteen says this, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So Satan is in the distraction business. He wants to distract us from the solution that God has provided. And he doesn't care how he distracts you. If it's another religion, great. If it's licentious sin, great. It doesn't matter. In fact, you've got two ends of the spectrum in the book of John. You've got a religious sinner in Nicodemus. You've got a licentious sinner in the Samaritan woman. And Satan is chortling and clapping and say yes to both of them. He doesn't give a rip that Nicodemus wears a, a you know, certain clothing and goes to you know, a synagogue. Who He's distracted that success. And this is exactly what Satan is after. And this is why I believe you see a lot of similarity in what the cults are teaching and what some of these unnamed evangelicals are teaching and what any religion is teaching. Because Satan, quite frankly, is not that creative. He's got a game plan. It works naturally with our human nature because we all believe in what my father-in-law told me one day, Tan Staffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? That's the acronym that he gave me when I was trying to date his daughter and convince him that I was worthy of marrying his daughter. He sat me down and we went through some budget together. And he said, Tan Staffel, just said, don't ever forget that. But you know, that's how we think spiritually. There ain't no thing as a free lunch. And just think about that concept because I want you to be more comfortable with that concept. It is free to you because Christ paid for everything. How about that? Does that sound a little bit better? Someone did pay for it. He paid for it in his life, his very life, and he paid for it in full. And the reason that he did that was so that he could offer it to you freely. It's free. It's not cheap. It's free. It's very costly, actually, because it costs the son of God his life. And so this is what we're talking about. Now, why does Satan attack the gospel? I believe for two reasons. We could give much more. The gospel is the only message that will save mankind. And Underline and highlight that in red, only. The only message that will save lost kind. And the gospel is the only work that's acceptable to God for salvation. And this is what religion misses. Religion wants to convince you that if you work hard enough and try enough, that God is gonna be interested and impressed with your good works. And I'm here to tell you, he's not. He is not impressed with your good works because you know what? He's already occupied with the greatest work that's ever been accomplished in the history of the world. And that was one work accomplished 2,000 years ago in history on a hill by his son. And that work was that he died for your sins and he rose again. 
That's what God's impressed with. And that's what he wants you impressed with. That's what he wants us interested in. And Satan wants to distract that because God has got the spotlight on Jesus Christ. God wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. In fact, I saw an interview not long ago, a a sweet young girl was asking a pastor. uh, She had sin in her life. She was worried about whether or not she was saved. And you know, in that conversation, the pastor never even mentioned the finished work of Christ. He told her, well, do you love God? Do you want to obey his commandments? Have you been more obedient today than you were yesterday? Oh, well, then you're saved. Since when does that, where is that taught in the Bible? I mean, when does that save somebody, someone's obedience? And so God wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And so when we understand the gospel, we want to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. Here's what Satan's into. Flashlight on anything else. Doesn't care. Just just move the spotlight off of Jesus Christ. We're good. Doesn't matter what it is. And this is exactly what religion does anything else but Jesus Christ alone. Satan doesn't want you to know today that Christ has paid your sin debt in full. He wants you to think that you got to pay something more. He wants you to think there's something left for you to do because if he can do that, he can distract you from the glory and the grandeur of what Jesus Christ accomplished on your behalf. And so the gospel is under satanic attack. And so we want to provide clarity this morning The gospel is comprised of the right person and the right work. And again, just to distinct, the right person's not you and what you must do. And the right work is not what you must do. We're talking about somebody else. We're talking about the Savior and what he accomplished. And then the gospel has got a biblically uh, prescribed response given in the scriptures. And so we want to look at that right response. And so what does the word gospel mean? Well, you guys have heard this a million times. It means good news. Typically, when we read news, what are we reading about? We're reading about events that happened in the past. I don't read the newspaper this morning about events that will happen in my life in the future. I read about something that's already happened. And so this Greek word euangelion is, uh, just means good news. And it can mean generic good news of any kind. But the biblical writers developed a technical meaning for the word, I believe, a technical, a special meaning for this word. And the way they did it is they added the word the to the front of it. Now they're distinguishing. This is unique good news. This is a special type of good news that they were talking about, the ultimate good news. And so by doing so, they were speaking of this particular message of good news, which did what? Saved people from serious spiritual and eternal consequences. But before we look at the message more closely, I, wanna, I do want to look at the message, but I want to understand why. I want us to understand why this is so significant because I think when we realize, if we can realize the detriment that we're in, if we could realize the actual perilous type of situation that we're in in this world without the gospel, I think the good news means that much more. I think it becomes that much more valuable in our thinking. It's always been valuable in the thinking of God. But what happens is if you and I understand the peril that we were in, the good news is going to be magnified as the solution that God came up with that you and I need, period. And we're not going to fool around with religion. We're not going to get confused about doing and what we must continue to do because we're going to realize the situation was so bad, God had to send the rescue plan. God's life raft alone would save 
And this is what we've got to see now. I've got a picture up here, and I'm going to let you just take that scene in while I describe this. This was an accident in December of 2006. This GMC pickup truck was driving the same direction as this car up here was. When he started to slide off the road on the right shoulder, he overcorrected. The car flipped around. He busted over this piece of guardrail, and his car slid across the top of here, and then it flipped around and came to a stop right there. Now, you're looking at that, and you're like, wow, that's, that's not good. <laughs> that's a, that was obviously a very perilous situation. But what you don't realize until we get the bigger picture of what was going on, this is where the car was located, right there. That's actually where he flipped and slid and spun around was right there. And guess what? It gets worse. That's an aerial shot. See that box up there? That's where the truck was. And you can see a town and some houses and a city down here at the bottom of that precipice. Now that's, whoo, man, I say my heart rate went up just looking at those pictures, right? I mean, that's perilous. But I want to convince you visually, if I can, your spiritual consequences and my spiritual consequences scenario is much worse than that. I don't know how else to describe it. It was worse than that. It was absolutely worse than that. And this is why when you look at what religion tries to do, any attempt by man to make some contribution to this situation is, is so foolhardy, it's laughable. This is the problem we had. We needed a big solution, a big life raft, a big God to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And so when we talk about being saved, you know, oftentimes when we think about that, it means we're going to heaven. But I want to just take a step back and say, what were we saved from? What was this perilous situation? Let's try to paint it biblically. In fact, when you look at the word salvation, you look at the title of Jesus as Savior, it implies what? We need saving from something. We, and if it's not hell, what is it? What's he saving us from if it's not hell, right? And so the Bible is very clear. The question then becomes, what are we saved from? Well, God is holy and righteous and we are not. That's a very succinct way to say that we're sinners. God is not. God is holy. He's just. He's a perfect judge. He's got to give us what we deserve. Otherwise, he would no longer be just. And he doesn't just put on his justice hat once in a while. He is just by very character. The good thing, too, we're going to see is that he's also loved by character. So he, he makes a way for his justice to be met. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But God is holy and righteous, and we're not. You and I were born separated from God in Adam. That's what the Bible teaches. And then we proved out that position of separation through acts of sin. And that's why when you go through the law of God, you and I can see that we are sinners. And by the way, the law is not given to you as a standard by which you try to keep to get to heaven or to obtain a righteousness that God will accept. The law was given to show you the truth of number one, God is holy, you're not. That's what the law does. Have you ever told a lie? How many lies have you told? Ooh, you ever stolen anything, right? Just work through the Ten Commandments. You ever looked at somebody with lust? You ever been angry with someone? You ever hated somebody, right? You ever dishonored your parents? Parents, don't say amen too loud to that one. We all have. That's the point of the law. It is designed to shut your mouth and my mouth 
from attempting to justify ourselves or to declare ourselves righteous. And this is why if you ask somebody, do they know for sure whether or not they go to heaven, many of them will say, I hope so. I hope so. Why do they hope so? Because they, they know they've got this sin. They know they've done wrong things, but they've also made an attempt to do right things and they're just not sure how the balance scales are gonna pan out for them in the long run. I've got good news for you today. If you don't hear anything else, you don't have to hope so. You can know so. That's what the Bible talks about. That's the value of the gospel because everything that you deserved to pay, and we'll talk about that in a second, Jesus paid it for you. And by the way, is the law forgiving? The law is unforgiving. That's why James 2, if you wanna write this down, James 2 says this, you can keep all of the laws perfectly. Break one, and it's like you're guilty of them all. And that's true in life too, right? If I go my whole life and I never murder anybody, and then when I'm 80, I, I pull the trigger on somebody. I can't go to the judge and say, well, my whole life I've never murdered anybody, just one time. <laughs> I'd be guilty of breaking the law just like I would have been guilty if I had killed 20 people in my 20s. Just as guilty, right? And so this is what we're talking about the law. God's holy, we're not. Many people will say, what's the big deal to that? Let me pull that point back. Many people say, what's the big deal? We all sin. I look at this guy, he sin. I look at my neighbor, she sin. I, you know, we're all in the same boat. Thus, we're okay. And that's the implication. We're all in the same boat, so thus, we're all okay. Nobody's perfect. Try that same logic in the ICU ward at Piedmont Noonan. Yeah, I'm in intensive care, but I'm not as bad as the person next to me. What's, what's there to celebrate there? You're still in intensive care. You're still in the ICU ward. And this is true of every person who's ever lived. We are sinners by, by action and by position. And you know what? A holy and just God's gotta punish sin. That's what we don't often consider. In fact, what is the one thing that we, so one of the three things that the spirit of God wants to convict the world of in John 16 when we eventually get there? Judgment. Judgment. We just want to push judgment off. We don't think we're going to have to face judgment. We think at some level, the scales will tip in our favor. They won't. They will not tip in our favor. This is the perilous situation that we each find ourselves in. And so sin's consequence is described as death. And by definition, death is separation. And so one of the things that we see here is the consequence of breaking or lacking this perfect righteousness is God must punish lawbreakers. We don't like to think of that. That's very uncomfortable. We don't like to place ourselves, but for the purpose of what we learn in the gospel and the value of what Jesus accomplished, we've got to get here mentally. We've got to see that this is exactly true, that God must punish lawbreakers. It's not like he just gained some thrill out of it. By his character, he's got to punish lawbreakers. And the scriptures is clear. Death is described in Romans 6.23 as wages owed. Something that you have earned, something that I have earned. Something that you have deserved, something that I have deserved. That's what sin gets each one of us. And just like a terrible friend, and I think I've said this before, I used to have friends in high school that we would do, uh, you know, bad things together, and, I would, and I would, we'd get caught, and I'd turn around, and they were gone. And they would leave me holding the bag. And you know, the worst one like that in the entire universe is Satan. Because what does he promise through sin? Oh, fun, 
pleasure, excitement. We're going to stick it to the man. They told me I couldn't do this. I can do this. I've got freedom. I've got independence. And then he leaves you holding the bag. And this is the bag. The sin that you and I have committed are wages owed. We earn and deserve death. And this is, by the way, explains why every person dies physically. Because this death that's we're owed is multi-level in this sense. It explains why we die physically. It explains spiritual death, which is separation from God. And then it explains eternal spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God in the place called the lake of fire. And so when we're trying to summarize this, we have a twofold problem that we need to be saved from. Again, setting the stage. We have a debt that we cannot pay, which is an eternal death sentence. And number two, we have a righteousness problem. We don't have perfect righteousness. We need perfect righteousness to enter heaven. See, religion is very comfortable on grading on a curve. Just get the best righteousness you can and then God will let you in. That's not true. (laughs) That is not true. We have got to get this into the mind of those that we love who are not saved. They think it's about their good works, what they do, what they continue to do. God will not accept that level of righteousness. He does not grade on a curve. He grades on perfection. And by the way, nobody has it. That's a problem. That's a perilous situation. See, the problem with religion is they think, they think and the way they teach is like, you just need a little bump across the finish line. And what religion doesn't realize is you're not even on the track. You're not even in the stadium. They think they're just gonna bump you across the finish line with their little do this, don't do that, start doing this. They're missing the boat completely because they think that car wreck was just on some normal road in West Texas, you know, flat West Texas with no hills. No, we were in peril. We are in peril. If you're sitting there today and you've never trusted in Christ, you are in peril. The good news is you don't have to remain there. You don't have to start attending this church. If this is your first time in here and you never come back, I want you to know you can know for sure you're going to heaven when you die. You can know for sure that you have forgiveness of sins. You can know for sure that somebody else took care of your twofold problems so that you wouldn't have to face it. His name's Jesus Christ. And he loved you so much. He gave his life for you on the cross. And God raised him from the dead, which we'll celebrate corporately again next week. He raised them from the dead to convince you and persuade you that you can trust in him alone. God is satisfied, are you? That's really the ultimate question when it comes to salvation. And so now that we have a clearer understanding of our perilous situation, the ability of what the gospel can accomplish should excite us, right? Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul? Your neighbor might think poorly of you. Your coworker might not eat with you anymore. This person may never talk to you again. But you know what? When we understand the peril of the situation and what Christ accomplished, we don't give a spiritual ripstick what anybody else thinks of us, do we? We're not ashamed because it is what it is. I'm not ashamed that the sky is blue because it is what it is. We're not ashamed of the gospel because it is the only thing that can save somebody from an eternal destiny in hell that they deserve. It's crazy. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, what is? What's it? The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who does what? 
believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in what? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And you see, the gospel is the only thing that takes care of our twofold problem. A debt we cannot pay, Christ died. A righteousness equal to God's righteousness, the gospel provides that. Does God know what he's doing or what? <laughs> I mean, he's got this thing figured out. He's got a great life raft. We want to take hold of it by faith. So what is the gospel? Well, it's not a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I can tell you that much. But I will say this, that the gospel, when we define it, has irreducible minimums. In other words, that if we take certain elements out of the message, it ceases being the finished product. I use the peanut butter and jelly sandwich as an example because to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you've got to have peanut, peanut butter, you've got to have jelly, and you've got to have bread, right? Irreducible minimums, okay? Peanut butter and jelly without bread is kind of a weird soup, right? Uh, jelly on bread is a young kid's dream, right? Didn't we all want jelly sandwiches? We're like, mom, just leave the peanut butter off. Just slap some jelly on there. And then peanut butter and bread is, a, is an old man's dream that goes right up there with oatmeal. You know, it's like, that's, it, it just fits well, right? So you got to have, for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you got to have all three of these ingredients. So what are the irreducible minimums of the gospel? Well, we want to look at those and to do so, we want to uh, get to 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're not there, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And we want to look at really two main ingredients, if you will. When we talk about the gospel message, if these two things are not mentioned, we're not preaching the gospel. We want to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 1, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand but which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now we're not gonna read, Leonard read that for us earlier. We're not gonna read through the rest, but notice the repetition of the phrase because I wanna come back to it. Verse five, he was seen. Verse six, after that he was seen. Verse seven, after that he was seen. Verse eight, last of all, he was seen, okay? And, I, and we'll come back to why I think that's significant here uh, in a second. But when we talk about the irreducible minimums of the gospel, we're talking about the right person, okay? This is Jesus Christ, the God-man, we'll talk more about that, and the right work. And the right work is good news that, uh, that happened on an actual historical day in human history that was verifiable that records Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so let's look closely at the right person. The right person is comprised, this person is comprised of two components. This is why you know that you're not the right person because the right person had to have these two components. He, he had to be fully God and he had to be fully man. In fact, notice, uh, it's just a small observation, but notice in verse three, notice that Paul didn't say that Jesus died for our sins. What does he say? He said, Christ died for our sins. It's, significant. it's not that Jesus isn't the Christ. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that what is Paul bringing out there? What's the significance of that subtle comment? He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the prophesied one that would come. There's a very unique 
combination of personhood in the Messiah, unique in, in that it's never been accomplished before and it was never accomplished since in this unique son of God. The Christ or the Messiah was to be human. Romans 1.3 says he was to be born of the seed of David according to the flesh. The Messiah is the seed of the woman, virgin born, who was promised as the problem solver. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, he would be the one that would solve mankind's twofold problem. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We also know that the Christ was to be God, deity. Christ was God residing with us, right? Isaiah 7.14, Emmanuel, right? God with us. Romans 1.4, uh, again, he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by what? The resurrection from the dead. And so why is that important? Why is the right person important for salvation? Religion wants to make you the person that has to do something. But the right person is important because part of man's penalty, part of our twofold problem was this death penalty. And so now we've got a person who had to be human to truly die, but he had to be divine for his death to count for you and for me and for her and for him and for the entire world. This is why this unique person had to come together. And this is why our faith is, has to be in the right person. And that's Jesus Christ, the God-man, the unique God-man in the universe. And so he's the right person. That's where our faith needs to be. Our faith needs to be in the right work. Again, another irreducible minimum of the gospel is the right work. And there's two components of this work. There are two components to his personhood. There's two components of the gospel or the work of Jesus Christ. And the first one, we know well, Christ died for our sins. In fact, he suffered spiritual, eternal, and physical death. He paid the full death penalty in all its multi-level aspects. Now, I ask this question a lot to people, and, and most people get it right, when, when Christ died for our sins, how many of your sins did he die for? We, we typically say all. But then when we start fleshing that out, people have a hard time seeing how this all works together. Because it's, I'll say, so does that mean he died for the sins you committed when you were 10? Oh, yeah, for sure. What about the sins you committed yesterday? Oh, yeah. What about the sins you will commit 20 years from now? And that's when everyone gets a little nervous. Uh, I don't know the answer to that one. Well, you just told me the answer two minutes ago. He died for all of your sins. So he paid the sin penalty in full. Even the sins that you haven't committed yet, there's only one payment for sin. Christ paid it in full. And what did we say Satan wants to convince people of? That your sin debt is not paid in full. That in some way you're gonna be responsible somewhere out there for some sin that you might possibly commit the responsibility is gonna come back on you. And I'm here to tell you, the gospel doesn't allow that. That's why it's such good news. Now, do you deserve that? No. Let me just answer that quickly. I don't either. That wasn't a finger pointing session. We don't deserve that. That's why we're saved by grace. God is free to give us something that we don't deserve because he gave Christ what you did deserve. That is the message of the gospel. By the way, there are two verifiable proofs to convince us that Christ did indeed die for us. I wish we could look at these for time. I've got them up there if your hand's right quickly enough. But he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Do you know that God went through great pain and effort to prophesy and predict that the Messiah would die 
for you. Isaiah 53, that he would die in your place so that you wouldn't have to die. He goes through and he proves it out all through the Old Testament. And then we see that Christ was buried. Another proof that he did indeed die. You don't typically bury people if they're still living. And if you do, you'll kill them, right? So you bury people who have already died and Christ was buried. What about the second part of his work? We'll spend a lot more time on this next week, but Christ was raised on the third day. And so there's two verifiable proofs given in the passage to prove that he rose again. How do you know? I mean, anyone could say, oh yeah, he rose again. He's in spirit form. I couldn't see him, but I I know he came back. No, he actually did what? Well, number one, it was prophesied. God said that he was gonna raise him again. God predicted in the Old Testament scriptures that he was gonna raise him again. And then as we went through that phrase that was repeated, he was seen. People saw him. Eyewitness testimony over and over and over again. And we see that in verses five through eight. Again, why is the right work important? And this is, this is so key to understand because it just shoots religion out of the water. We hopefully will never think this way again because it's the only solution that can take care of our twofold problem. This perilous situation we're in, our sin penalty was death. What did Christ do for you? He died for you so that you would never have to face that death penalty. This is why the simplest verse in the world, it just coincides, John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. You don't have to face the death penalty because Christ faced it for you. This truly is good news. And by the way, our second problem, we lack necessary righteousness. Guess what God does? The moment you trust in Christ, he credits his righteousness to your account. God solved the problem. God solved this incredible problem. And that's what makes me so frustrated with religious thinking. And I'm not frustrated with the person that believes it. They've been led astray either just through natural understanding, because this is the natural way you'll come about it, or they've sat under teaching that leads them astray. And that just infuriates me. I'm upset about that because religion will put the onus on you. Religion will always try to extract from you. When do I know I've arrived, Mr. Religious Teacher? Just a little bit more, John. Just keep on coming, keep on getting. Usually it involves giving to me. Usually it involves coming to my, building my kingdom, right? It's, the onus is on you and what you must continue to do. And again, God just simply wants you persuaded and convinced that he's taken the care of your problem for you. That's what he wants to convince you of. And this is why the right response to the gospel is faith. In fact, According to the scriptures, there's only one response required of man to the gospel message. It's faith alone in Christ alone. God came up with a solution. The question is, will you trust in his solution? That's it. It's a real simple message. In fact, uh, those of you in our, we've got those Book of John sermon notes. We've got, we've got that QRQC code out there. We're gonna, we're gonna put a list of 160 verses in the New Testament that give faith as the only prerequisite to be saved. You just scan that QR code and it'll be up. You can kind of see it on our website and see some other handouts that we've got on there as well. But what is biblical faith? Well, the Greek words that you've got a noun form, pistis, you've got a verb form, pistuo. It literally means to believe in, to rely upon, to trust in, or to have faith in. And when we talk about believing as a verb, it implies that that there's a subject doing the believing and there's an object upon which we rest. A subject trusting and then an object or something or someone that we're trusting in. And one of the things that we see from the scriptures, and this is true in life, 
the value of, the, uh, of your faith relies solely on the value of the object in which you're trusting. I would sit on that chair on the left. I don't think I'd sit on that chair on the right. Why? Because I don't trust it. I don't trust it to hold me. Over 200 pounds, I, I mean, I'd probably break the other legs off on the other side, right? I'd try to sit on that thing. This is what we're talking about here. And the question that we've got to settle in our mind is not what you must do. Do you think the chair on the left represents Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you? Because that's an easy decision right there. But it's just as easy spiritually if you're convinced that what Jesus did is enough and that you can rely on him alone. And that he does what saviors do, which by the way, seems like a real simple question, but what do saviors do by definition? They save you. What's he saving you from? The twofold problem that each one of us has. And so faith is excluded from the category of works by the scriptures. In fact, it's just contrast. You just write that verse down. We don't have time. We'll kind of come back on this next week. But let me just finish here. Simply put this morning, God's got one and only one solution to our sin problem. It's this. Jesus Christ, he died for you. He rose again. And if you rely on that solution, you'll be saved, period. This is why 1 John 5, 13 says, these things I've written you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, not hope. You may know that you have eternal life. And eternal life lasts how long by definition? Forever. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, a, that's an easy, that's a softball one. And so the following couple of weeks, next week will be Easter, the following couple of weeks, we're gonna look at some more confusions in the area of response to the gospel. Why? Why do we not just say faith in Christ, period? Why do we keep adding these things? And we're gonna look at some very popular cliches that are used in Christendom and just show why they're not biblical. So I'd love to invite you back for that. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I, I do thank you. I hope this morning was, was clear. And Lord, really the ultimate goal is to see in the finished work of your son, the value that you see in it. That's the goal. That's the goal. May we see the value of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. May, may the value of that work and the value of his person just be exalted in our thinking to levels that we've never considered before. And may he just really stand out in our thinking as someone who is impressive and someone who's done a very impressive thing on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.